Today, we had the great pleasure of chatting with Inwa Lee, current China director of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, previous McKinsey partner, and one of the pioneers building bridges between China and the United States. We discuss why Western media gets it wrong, why her grandmother bravely pulled to Milan to gain education, and even why our professor has brainwashed us. We're excited to share the first episode of Ta for Ta. Let's get into it. So today on our show at Ta for Ta, we have Inwo Lee. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. And so I think we just want to start with, can you describe your identity? Have you experienced living in China and the United States? And what were some of the differences between the two? Mm, absolutely. Well, the identity is a big word. <laughs> so there are many dimensions to it. I guess if we take the China-US aspect of, uh, aspect of it, I... I grew up in China, but I went to the States for grad school and then you know, started my professional career there with McKinsey. And then I worked, moved back to China for five, six years and worked in Beijing and then moved back to the States again. And then now with the Gates Foundation, I'm moving back again to China. So it's a little bit of a mm. moving around, but that's my identity. So what catalyzed this change for you from going from McKinsey to the Gates Foundation? Mm. Yeah, so um, when I left... McKinsey, I was at McKinsey for 10 years. So in a way, frankly, it was a pretty comfortable place. And then, you know, I don't really have a boss, right? So then that's that's what what, what, what was. And then practically, the reason of the trigger was uh, Gates Foundation was my client when I was at McKinsey. So I got, got to know what they do, um, both, you know, in China, especially in China, in their organizations actually put their resources in sort of reducing inequality, right? I think that was at one level. And then... And the other other level is also kind of getting to, you know, in a way, seeing the possibility of putting my sort of skills in uh, solving bigger problems. Although at McKinsey, I, I'm very grateful for that experience. I think I grew, exp- you know, exponentially, um, professionally during the 10 years I was there. But still, you're largely, I would say if now I take a step, a step back, most of the problems we're solving are largely, you know, middle class problems, right? So it's, you know, private sector, most of company strategy, and we serve, we do some pro bono work for sure, as any good company do. But still, largely, that's the nature of the the work you do. Um, and then, and then getting, you know, this this role in a way gives the possibility for a, in a way, much broader scope. You actually are faced with, you know, playing a role in working with the government, working with, you know, private sector, working with um, NGOs and solving some of the social challenges and oftentimes social challenges at a global level. So I think that, frankly, from a problem solver point of view, that's very exciting to me, right? Because, you know, like, so what kind of prope- propelled me to be in McKinsey for so long was also the nature of solving always interesting and consequential problems. Gates Foundation, in a way, although it's a change sector on surface, but at root, it's still the same. It's solving bigger problems and in a much more complex setting. It seems that you're touching so many problems with the Gates Foundation. It's such a critical foundation, whether it be urban migration in China or healthcare, agriculture. I think these are all things that you've touched upon. Mm. Which of these do you think touches upon women as well? And there's this intersection. And what do you think is going to happen in the future with that? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things the foundation is looking at right now uh, at the sort of a um, headquarter level is, is this issue about gender. So gender inequality, I think, is a huge issue. And then one of the in the in Bill Gates' annual letter, there was this paragraph that said, says poverty is sexist because most of the people, you know, if you look at you know most of the population suffering from poverty are actually women. Um, so there is, I think, that was that was the line from Bono. It's true. And then so then there is a huge gender issue because if you look at global level in terms of across health outcomes, 
across you know economic conditions across access to economic opportunities and then there's a huge gap between women and men almost there's a framework i think we're thinking about looking at is if you look at almost from puberty to having the child and then, then being a mother and then all that so then there are multiple steps along the way so to speak where you can be left behind or you know under supported so i think it's it's really kind of how it's a complex issue, but definitely from even the foundation, this is, this is a very cross-cutting issue across many things we talk about, health, agriculture. Do you have a specific story that you worked on relating to that? In China, because most of the work we're doing is in China, it's actually less, less obvious, you know, because one of the issues we started with is HIV. But HIV, frankly, has the opposite of issues, uh, men having sex with men. And that's actually they're suffering from that most. So I think this kind of imbalance exists in different pockets, in different nature, right? So I think that's also one I want people to appreciate. It's not always it's the women, it's the disadvantaged. Each problem has its own contexts and, and issues. But for us, you know, this year we're start to work with poverty alleviation in China. And then when you look at the reason for um, poverty, and there is a huge difference in terms of the gender, right? Because if you look at both the population who are suffering from it and, and all that, and there's, a, there's, you know, women definitely are proportionally much more affected. There is also a cross-generational issue as well, because that's, everything starts with education. And then girls has less chance of going to school and especially in rural China that's very obvious as well and then of course then that holds you back from the beginning um, so then when we look at poverty lens even in the China context which I would argue probably is not that bad if you look at poverty lens there's a huge challenge for women for what sure. do you think are the social issues that um, affect marginalized groups in China that are mm. the least understood by Western discourse on China Oh, that's a big question, but I think that overall... That is a big question. Yeah, but overall, I would say... Um, so marginalized group has, again, it means very different things for different type of topic, sort of the underappreciated by the West aspect of it, is that there are actually many of these groups, first of all, and that's a fact probably people don't, and don't see. And second, there are also voices um, or NGOs actually standing up for them in, in terms of giving them a voice. Um, and thirdly, I think that's indeed, you know, far from adequate, the issues like gay men, which is very, very widely talked about in the Western world, and even in China, it's still kind of hush-hush. Right? I mean, that I would even argue that is a probably a pretty, you know, mainstream group of the marginalized group, mm. right? Because, you know, they're, they're even more marginalized than them. Even for this group, I think, you know, still it's rather hush-hush in China. Um, and then there is actually discrimination even among the marginalized group, the urban homosexual men. Are probably higher on the discrimination chain than the rural you know there's a lot of complexity you know or sophistication when you look into it rather than just simply there is this group and somebody's standing up for it so i think it's because also china is happening in this cultural context and it being sort of the quote-unquote oriental culture being more reserved and all that and that makes it all harder right because then for people to see that so i guess that, that's why maybe there is difficulty of understanding these issues is putting these issues in the china historical context I think that's where it's largely missing. And I think you do that really well. I'm so impressed with this Get Smart on China that you do within the Gates Foundation. But I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit more about how that came about and what was the inception of that. Yeah, it was interesting. I think that it was started from a conversation about China's government, right? So, like, you know, if you talk to any, you know, even ask you, what do you think of China's, China's government? If you use your three words to characterize it, what would be your top choice? I'd probably give you hierarchy, Meritocracy. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've learned it here. That's <laughs> that says that all the time. Yeah. David Bell. Structure. <laughs> David Bell. Experimentation, I think, is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, indeed. So I guess at least, you know, since you brainwashed by David Bell. And then, uh, <laughs> so you actually have those words. But actually, usually, yeah, hierarchy or bureaucracy or corruption. I mean, that's usually how a Western media think about it. So then, oh, that, you know, there was, you know, but if you actually know, understand how the government works, it's actually a very well-run organization. There's a lot of more, in, indeed, meritocracy than, you know, relationship or, you know, or corruption, I know who, because it's a huge team, right? If you think about it, it's, it's a huge organism. But I think that's very much underappreciated by a well-educated person in the U.S. First of all, nobody talk about it, right? No, no media is interested in covering how China government works, right? And second, you know, like, the, there is no story to be told. Like, in how would you, why would you do that? I and mean, we're so, so U.S.-centric exactly. in the way the U.S. news That works. is very true. And I think one of the, frankly, one of my criticism for the U.S. education system is that, of course, it's good at innovation and all that, you know, personal growth, but, but it has a huge problem in global competence. Because all the news, exactly, because when I was in the, when I first arrived in the U.S., I was shocked. Like, all the newspapers is about things that happened within your block. I was like, why are people so obsessed, you know, <laughs> with neighborhood news? It's definitely true. I was once talking to this international student from Ireland, and he almost knew more about U.S. news than I did. Right. And I exactly. asked him, how do you know more about U.S. news? He says, because all you guys talk about is yourselves. We are so small. We have to know what Europe is doing, what the U.S. is doing. It's, that's a really fair point. It stuck with me. Yeah, exactly. So that is very true. No, frankly, that was my biggest surprise I think I when I came to the states that was you know back in 2000 for my PhD and then so I, I was like shocked because I thought you know US is the most open free you know like international country right but actually it's not it's actually very inward looking if those you, are your three words that you'd give <laughs> <laughs> indeed that would have been yeah but so that's why part of it you know that's why you actually seldom see stories about how things work in reality so the first issue I wrote about is actually how government works and actually, people are, are curious. I mean, if, so like people actually like to read it. So they say. So I, I explained a little bit, you know, how the organization and department of the party, you know, how what's the criteria, and then like how did somebody like Xi Jinping get to where he is? You know, it's not because he's simply the son of somebody. It's actually, you know, he has. If you look at his career, he has been to basically checked all the boxes. He's done well. So and then you can almost predict actually who will make it to the top because you will look at the people who have checked the boxes and did well. And then there are people who are doing that. And then reason is predictable because there is a system there, right? You know, it's an intellectually curious and interesting topic. And then people actually like to read about it. So I think that was my first issue because this whole conversation about Chinese government. And then there's so much misperception about, okay, this is a, you know, communist country or whatever. <laughs> so, that, so I think that was, that was very little effort to go beyond the labels. Mm. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. I think that's at least I'll take you through some of the stories and then just, just dismiss whatever labels and let's look at some facts and have some history and how things became what it is. You're going to have to tell us how to get on that email listserv after this podcast. <laughs> and actually, in preparation, Sarah and I have been obsessively looking at your Medium page because you have a Medium. <laughs> yeah. And I just wanted to pull out a quote from sure. one of them. Yeah. It said... Many of the postings on social media in China are people sharing old pictures, reflecting. This sentiment is quite in contrast to what's on Western media, most of which took a distant and detached observer role in their coverage. So what do you think the Western media is still getting wrong along the same line? Yeah, no, I think that was the particular quote is about, you know, the, the stuff I wrote after the, the, the parade, right, then this last September. And actually, I wrote that piece in an hour, you know, because I was actually back then, I was still living in the U.S. And then that, you know, if you look at all the mainstream coverage of Chinese parade is about, okay, showing off military might, right? It's about, okay, now you look at the missiles, you look at the tanks, but actually the... And just for some of our listeners, will you explain what the parade is? Uh, sure. 
because that that was a parade in September of 2015. Right. It was celebrating the seventh, you know, in China's context, celebrating the seventh year, 70th year anniversary of the uh, anti-Japanese war. So that that basically ended in 1945. It was interesting if you look at all the coverage, so in New York Times, in New York, you name it, everything is basically similar tone around. Okay, look at you know all the missiles, and then, you know, and then the South China Sea and all that. But the sentiment, you know, because I grew up in China, so I have, you know, I wrote about because my grandparents actually were through that war themselves, right? So then there is this absolute thrill around that time when the war ended because it's such a suffering, you know, like long and, you know, horrible, I guess, eight years, you know, with the Japanese invasion, the highest number of deaths, I think probably 36 million people or something, I have the number in the article. So, you know, it feels very different when there's a war happen on your homeland, especially in the U.S., because it didn't happen on the U.S. homeland. So you, no. you don't feel that way. You don't have your neighbor. You don't see your village being, you know, looted or, you know, people being killed and ripped, right? You don't you don't see your relatives, you know, kids being suffered, you know, suffocated to death. You don't, you don't have that. So, so there's an absolute thrill and joy when the war ended. And then, so this is the actual celebration of that right so you know we're happy you know like it's um, personal exactly it's very personal and, and there are people who are who live through that so they actually get veterans who are in their 90s who actually live through that and then you know they're actually remembering the history around it. and it's really around okay let's remember how horrible the wars are and how happy we were when it ended and then so let's look see how can we make our world a peaceful place going forward so that's really the spirit when we are in china first of all very personal because i have you know as i said my own grandparents lived through it and so you know she actually saw her own aunts being raped by the japanese and so like you know like and, and then stabbed to death right i mean it's, a, it's what a traumatizing thing if you imagine like seeing that right so then so of course then when things ended and then the, every year the celebration we think back on what have happened so it's a, so for a nation who has gone through that, you look at it very differently than somebody just looking at the picture of the video and seeing their you know military going through the parade. So by saying I mean we're saying detached observer and say okay you you kind of make comments you make smart comments on the sidelines saying oh look at that and then you kind of use your own term of reference to interpret what's happening there. Mm-hmm. So what's missing is really you know wh- what is the historical context why people are celebrating why people are so happy it's not because it's not because of now we have a big army the the country is back on its own feet it's independent. We're, you know, we can feed ourselves, you know, let's, let's look for a better future. So that was really what triggered me to say that's, that's, that's sharp contrast of how, you know, as a Chinese who actually, you know, experienced it, you know, indirectly for me, for sure, but through you know, my direct family members versus, you know, all reading about what people are covering. I, I think that that personal, not, not only personal, it's really understanding the historical context and the cultural context of what things happening. And then, then when you have that, you will interpret things in a very different way, because otherwise you, you interpret things with your own references, your own rather than how they experienced it. Maybe that's the simple principles of empathy. Yeah, but in the broader sense, yeah, yeah. And if you were to list one big misunderstanding that you would like to correct about China, yeah, what would it be? There are indeed many, (laughs) but I think maybe it is indeed. In fact, there's one thing around, you know, at least common days Western interpretation of China. The only thing missing that it's often missing is historical context, and I think that's it. Because oftentimes people look at China as China in the last 40 years, right? So if you look at most of the description about what China is, China China this, China that, and even like, I mean, China is bashed every time there's a U.S. political campaign or, you know, presidential election because it's all China, China, China. Exactly. (laughs) And it's all China being, okay, I mean, first of all, a a trade, you know, like a trade country stealing jobs or whatever, you know, I don't need to repeat all the the, uh, things, but it's, it's very much looking at China as of today. China, in a way, is a very unique country. I think you probably all know that since you came here. I mean, this is probably the, the this is the only continuous civilization 
on the surface of Earth, right, for 500 years, 5,000 years. And the fact that you can actually now look, I can actually look back to stuff written 3,000 years ago and understand it is actually quite amazing for our human race, if you think Absolutely. about it, right? Um, and then the, you know, much of that actually makes sense. So if you look at many things that happen, even China today, I think most Western depiction of China now is sort of the quote-unquote communist China, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, that there's, there's no such thing as China today. Everything has its historical cultural roots. And even the quote-unquote communist China thing, and that was the biggest shock for me too when I went to uh, the States and realized how people think about communist, which... I actually have very little connection of what that, you know, people in the West think about communism versus what happened in China. But people use the same word, you know, almost East Europe, Russia, China is the same. But it's actually very, very different. But that, again, that context, and again, that how sort of the quote-unquote communist, that word landed in China, how it is being used by the Communist Party, and then how it is then being used to really integrate with China's reality around that time. So although on the word, it probably also called communist, and then on surface, it's the same. But in China's context, it's really about, I would say, the sense of independence, because that, that's when the Communist Party started in the 1920s. China is in the midst of civil wars, and then, then I think the, if you look at China's maybe 150 years of history, it's a history of humiliation, right? Because it started with 1980, the Opium War. There are rounds and rounds of evasion, colonization, and that happened. So that is a context of China, which is very different from the Eastern Europe context, right? Right. So to like drill into this idea, you're saying historical context is what people don't understand. It's yeah. not taking the time to understand the history and yeah. what went into government. What does communism actually mean? Is that what you're going at in terms yeah, of historical indeed, context? Indeed, indeed. Because you, you, you lack that, you kind of take a word and then, you know somehow understand it as you would you know, in, in other contexts. In this vacuum almost. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. So I guess if... But that's hard because I think for China is unique in this way because if you grew up, I mean Europe is similar in the way if you look at the UK and they're, they're much bigger history and a much longer history and lots of the things are rooted in how the society has functioned, what's the social infrastructure around that time. And then so then so kind of having that thing is so I, I appreciate it's difficult because especially if you you didn't live in that type of society, right, where many of your terms and the things you use actually rooted thousands of years ago. So there are some similarities there, and then also many things that happened in the recent years are also, I would say, kind of has, you know, China has this word called something with Chinese characteristics, right, the socialism. Mm. So that, that is very hard to understand, but what is social China characteristics? But indeed, it, it is this kind of hybrid of China's own kind of identity and history and culture with, you know, whatever concept is there. So everything is like very uniquely Chinese. <laughs> so with I think those that's Chinese kind of, characteristics. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think we want to end this podcast on a more personal note. Uh, as you mentioned, it seems like you had really strong female characters in your life, whether it be your grandmother, your mother, enduring poverty, famine, aspects of the Cultural Revolution. Are there any lessons that they taught you that you've kept with you? Mm. Yeah, indeed, because I think maybe I, now looking back, I, um, I really benefited from that sort of value system in my family. Although, you know, we talked about feminism and then talk about sort of gender inequality, but in my family has been, I think I'm in a way blessed, like there has always been this spirit of girls and boys are the same. You just should try the best of yourself. Yeah, that impacted me a lot. I think for the my grandma was basically taught herself to read, and then at the time when reading, most women are supposed to be illiterate, so she sort of secreted joined some classes and then you know learned to read, and then that was where were these classes? Yeah, you know, it's like basically taught in rural teachers, and she has to dress up as a man to go or as a boy to go because you know it would be against 
<laughs> yeah, it was wow. very interesting. And then so, but and then it was interesting, very interesting. My so she's telling story about her father secretly allowed her to go, and she's very nervous. That she said, "I can actually not understand your letters because they're letters written." And then her father didn't say anything, but basically nodded. And then so then she said, okay, that means permission. I can continue to take this class. So it was very interesting. So very she, subtly. Yeah, yeah, in, indeed. So she, she's very thankful for her, for her dad. And, and, you know, kind of not although, not openly saying you should do that, but at least allowed it to happen. And, and my mom was a chemical engineer. So she has been sort of the most senior engineer in her factory of 4,000 people at age like 30-something. So it's very achieved. And she has never, she has been a working woman all her, all her time, and she has you know, in the engineering world stood out. So she never thought, you know, because I'm a woman, I couldn't do it. So I think that, you know, although, we, although they never, kind of, we're kind of pretty normal Chinese family, we don't talk about these things. You know, we don't say, okay, you should go for it. But you know, I think those are very, very powerful role models. So I never grew with the assumption that I would be worse than boys. I think now I really benefit from because I know now this is not something everybody has, but that is very important. So that's why part of my intention or of keep, it work, keep working because I have three kids is, do, is doing that. Obviously, do spend less time with my kids compared to a you know, stay-at-home mom. Mm. But I realized how much, you know, when I was growing up, how much inspiration I got from my mother, who's actually often away. Just the fact that she's actually had her career and has her passion, I think that's super inspiring to me. I think that in, in influenced me to, to be who I am. So I, hopefully I can pass on the same for my kids. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing your passion with us over the last uh, 20 <laughs> or so minutes. We learned a lot about thank your you. perspective. Thank you for We're the really opportunity. Grateful. Thank All you right, so much for the time. Thank you.